Okay. Psalm 61. Psalm 61. Um, let's just read the Psalms. Read the Psalm as we begin. For the New American Standard Text, for the choir director on a stringed instrument, a Psalm of David. Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings, Salah. For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations. He will abide forever. Appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever. That I may pay my vows day by day. Um, I didn't read that well to close it. Let me just start. <laughs> Verse 8. So I will praise your name forever that I may pay my vows day by day. Um, one of the things that helps me is to see repeated phrases within the psalm or repeated words in the psalm. For example, in 61... Verse 1 and verse 5, you see the word hear. Hear my cry, O God. And then in verse 5, for you have heard my vows, O God. Hear my cry, you have heard my vows. So the word hear is important. The word refuge is used in both three and four. Both three and four. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Salah. Now, you may have a translation that may not have the word refuge there both times, but, but it, this is consistent with the original language as well. Not only are these words the same in the New American Standard, but the original word, the Hebrew word, is the same also. And then the word your name in verse 5 and in verse 8, you see that particular expression. In verse 5, it talks about those who fear your name. In verse 8, the, take, the text talks about, I'll praise your name forever. So we praise God's name, we fear or revere God's name. And so those are some common things that you see in the psalm. Another thing that we try to do, sometimes we don't state it as formally, as we do what we do at the end when we say, what does the psalm teach us about Jesus? 
But, but always look for what the psalm says about the nature of God. And then what it says about our response to Him. In light of who He is, in light of who He is, in light of who God is, how do we respond? Just be looking for that as well throughout the psalm, uh, as well as um, what it says about Christ. But he begins with this kind of double petition almost in verse 1. Hear my cry, give heed to my prayer. Um, Now, hear my cry. Uh, One writer said the word cry could be translated yell. It is a strong indication of distress. Hear my cry. O God. And Psalm 17 is another example of a psalm that begins in much the same way. Begging on God to hear our cry. Hear our cry. Hear my cry. Excuse me. Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. And both of these ideas are found in that verse in Psalm 17, 1 uh, that I had just mentioned. But let me just read Psalm 17, uh, verse 1. Hear a just cause. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. In the same kind of double petition that we see here. Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock which is higher than I. Now, the word that is translated faint let me tell you a place where it's used that helped me get a grasp on this term. It's used twice in Genesis 30 Verse 42, this is when all that deceit is going on between Jacob and Laban. And the Bible says the feeble animals belong to Laban and the stronger animals belong to uh, Jacob. I believe it's used twice in that verse, the word feeble or feebler, it may be translated. Feeble or feebler. But this is our same word for faith. What does it mean that someone is faith? It refers to their weakness, their physical weakness, their lack of strength. He may be using it physically. He may be using it emotionally. uh, But he feels overwhelmed. He feels discouraged. He says, my heart is faint. My heart is faint. And he says, when his heart is faint, He calls to the Lord from the ends of the earth. Now, this may be that he is away from home geographically at the ends of the earth. But he still looks to God. He still looks to the God who's dwelling in Jerusalem in a special way. It could be that he just feels that God is far away. Some have suggested it could be a, a spiritual distance that he is feeling from the end of the earth. I call to you, my heart is faint. 
And by the way, this word faint, a couple of other times I wanted to point out that it's used. Uh, it is used, it'll be used in Psalms in 70, um, 7 3, in 107 5, where they're hungry and thirsty and faint. It's used of Jonah from the belly of the great fish in Jonah 2 7. But he is faint and he begs God to lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I'm trying to think of the name and some of you will call it off immediately. Oh then to the rock let me fly. It's what? Yes, yes, yes. It does sound like a, I was. I was looking for the title of the song. Uh, what is this song? Okay. Well, I, I, sometimes I make it more complicated than it ought to be. It's okay. A rock that is higher than I. Okay. Um, but lead me to the rock that is higher than I. What can you see as a difficulty in interpretation? There in that passage. What would be an difficulty of interpretation? Well, knowing what the rock is. Yes, exactly. Knowing what the rock is. And Michael, you were shaking your head. I was his. just going to say, is it alluding to some, some other story or is it... Yes. And who often in the Psalms is the rock? You know, God himself. So... When he said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And this is a decision that your translators may make. Some of them may have put, I didn't carefully analyze all of this. Some of them may have put the rock with a capital letter indicating that they think this is a reference to the Lord himself. And this word is often used... Of the Lord. I'm just going to give you a couple of references. But in Psalm 18, it was used in verse 2, in verse 31, in verse 36. That the Lord is called the rock. And, and there are other passages that we could go to that say that same thing. But also the idea of the rock that is higher than I. It could just be that this is a place of shelter or security that God puts him in. So if we were to take it in that way, you see a reference in Psalm 27 verse 5. Psalm 27 verse 5. There uh, the text says... Uh, for the day of from the for in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle in the secret place of his tent he will hide me he will lift me on a rock a rock is a source of stability a place of security and to be lifted up on a rock is to put him out of the reach of his enemies and foe. But whichever way we take this, the idea is he is looking to God for security. Whether God himself is the rock or God is the one who places him on the rock. In the final analysis, 
doesn't make that much difference because God is his source of security. In Psalm 59 verse 1, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise against me. Set me securely on high from those who raised against me. In verse 3, For you have been a refuge for me. I don't know what all translations are represented here. A shelter for me, okay? A shelter for me. Also, I was thinking too about the verbs. Did you did you notice a difference? You have been a refuge for me. It's speaking there in past tense, isn't it? He's and and this is consistent. The New American Standard here is consistent with the original. In 61.1, the verbs... Now, this is not, this is not exactly uh, how it works 100% of the time. But in 61.2, the verbs in the original language are imperfects, and they are generally translated as future. The verb here in 61 verse 3 where it says you have been is a perfect which is generally translated as past. What's the big deal? The big deal of this would be in verse 2 He is calling to God for deliverance from a present situation and begging God to act in the present, begging God to act in the future. But the reason that he can have confidence that God will is because God has acted that way in the past. You have been a refuge for me. The reason he is confident that God will hear his call when his heart is faint and God will lead him to the rock that is higher than I is because of what God has been in the past. He's been a shelter. He has been a refuge. He's been a source of security. And he also describes God, hint, that may deal with one of our questions, He also describes God not only as a refuge uh, or a shield or or a place of security, but he also describes him as a tower, a tower of strength. Tower of strength. Okay? How many of you remember the story of Abimelech? Judges 9. You remember that story, Abimelech? And Abimelech, I know when I was young, sometimes they wanted to get to 15 judges. And so we put Abimelech up there as a judge, usually with a pretty sad face because he wasn't all that great of a guy. I I don't think that Abimelech qualifies as a judge. Kind of in the context of the book of Judges, he is opposite of all that a judge should be. Uh, But in the... Judges 9, when 
Abimelech's really mad at the people of Shechem. The men of Shechem run to a tower for shelter. You remember that? He comes in the city, and that's where Abimelech says to his men, you follow me. He cuts down a branch. They all cut down branches. They took them to the foot of the tower, and they set them on fire. And the people inside die. They, they look to the tower as a place of security or shelter. Now, I know in that case it didn't work, but we're trying to point out how a tower was a place of defense. A tower was a place of security. Now, in the next town, just to finish the Abimelech story, as Abimelech tried the same method, what happened? Okay, Gary, go ahead. Okay, a woman threw down the millstone on his head and killed him, and uh, therefore... Um, he, 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 tells, he tells his armor bearer, quick, kill me, before it could be said that a woman killed me. And um, certainly, he can't, a warrior can't go home and, and meet his family after a woman kills him. I mean, that would be so shameful. So, uh, but, but here he judges 9, beginning around verse 46, you do see this idea of a temple being, or excuse me, a tower being a place of security. Another passage I like along that line is Proverbs 18, verses 10 and 11. Proverbs 18, 10 and 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. The name of the Lord is one person's tower. Another person's tower or strong city is his wealth. Which of these is secure? We're told that the man who runs to the name of the Lord, the man who trusts in the Lord, that his, he is secure, he is safe. But the one who, who makes wealth his strong city, he has to draw upon his own imagination. This is contrasting the security with wealth provides with the, the security God provides with the lack of security that wealth provides. You have been a refuge for me, Psalm 61. You've been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Selah. Now as I tell this illustration... I'm not going to get it perfectly right. Um, but it's so powerful and well illustrated. I'm, I'm close to getting the story right. And it will, it will help you visualize this. A person was doing some kind of work of evangelism. Louder person was doing some kind of work of evangelism in a Muslim 
area. And he knew Muslims would be very antagonistic toward him and may even be trying to kill him. But the rules of hospitality are such that if you ask him, will you take me into your house? He will always say yes. He'll have to say yes. He'll have to say yes. And he can do you no harm. And he will allow others to do you no harm. So it may be that he wanted to kill you. And the way you work against that is to ask him if you can stay with him. So that's just a little hint (laughs) if you're in those places. Now, I don't know if I got every detail of that right. But that was generally the story that, that was related to me or I read of someone's experiences. The reason that I use the illustration, if there is security, if you came into someone's house or came into someone's tent, if they were obligated to try to protect you, which, by the way, Genesis 19 may show with Lot, and Judges 19 with that man who came into the house there um, in the land of Benjamin. Coming into God's tent and staying in God's tent, we would be the object of God's protection. And so he begs that God will be a tower of strength against the enemy, that God will let him dwell in his tent, and he will take shelter underneath his wings. And we've seen that expression quite frequently uh, recently. Look at uh, taking shelter under his wings. Psalm 57 verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. For my soul takes refuge in you. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. We've seen that phrase in the past. Lord willing, we will see it in the future. In Psalm 63 verse 7, You have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will will sing for joy. It is a very beautiful picture of a mother hen taking her chicks under her wings, protecting them, defending them, guarding them. And he says, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings, Selah. Okay, what questions or ideas do you have right there? Anything? Micah? I, I, we see throughout Scripture... Um human or, or bodily descriptions of God, the eyes of the Lord, his ears, and things of that nature, is, would there be anything to the, the wings analogy or the wing imagery with God? Uh, well, obviously there's a, there's a powerful point made by it. Um, if you really want now, um, if you really want to get technical, Micah, which your question opens up the possible. When you see the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. That's called an anthropomorphism. Describing God in the characteristics of man. 
When you see God described with the characteristics of an animal, I believe that's called a zoomorphism or something close. Now, if you're writing that down, spell it just like it sounds. Okay. But, but so, so technically, a, it, it falls almost into a different category. But it's the same kind of idea where you're using attributes of something we know and see to describe a characteristic of God. Whether it be the mother hen, whether it be the, um, the, the person, both of them have attributes that teach us various things about God. Anything else? Yes. Very good. That's a, that's a good observation. And the heading does emphasize that the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And I know, I, I take the titles of the Psalms seriously, but I know we can take that title of the Psalm seriously. Because it appears in the text of 2 Samuel 22. So I know we can take that title of the psalm seriously. And, and let me make here a practical point. And by making this practical point, I don't mean to act like I've got this down in real life. It would have been terrible for David, who was just a shepherd boy in his father's house, and he runs to the battlefield to check on his brothers. And he stands up and therefore becomes a hero because of his trust in God. But the Philistine, one who hasn't sought any kind of public position or notoriety. And yet all of a sudden now the king's efforts are trying to destroy him and to try to wipe him out. And as he says in 1 Samuel 20, verse 3, there's but a stealth between me and death. I mean, David was hounded by Saul. Saul is trying to kill him. But at the same time, this set a precedent for all of David's life. That just as God delivered him from the king... God delivered him from this one who is more powerful than he in the land. God delivered him. God can deliver him from other times of crisis. And it does us good sometimes to remember the troubles we face. Remember the difficulties we've experienced. And remember how God delivered us. And the Lord who delivered us in the past will deliver us in the future. And, and, and I would say, 
And I would say this. I, um, let me use this as an illustration. I, I mentioned earlier my father and his condition. And I am thankful that he has been spared. And I am thankful he is doing better. But we all know that none of us are infinitely spared in this life. Ultimately, we will face difficulties and distresses that we will not recover from as far as this life goes. But I would say this, that every time that God does deliver us, and every time he does rescue us, that is a foreshadowing of the ultimate deliverance that we will experience in the resurrection of the dead. Now, let me tell you the passages I would go to to say that. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul is talking about his past to Timothy. He says, let me start with verse 10, and then I'll read verse 11. 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11. But you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my love, my perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Now he mentioned some specific places, Antioch, Iconium and Lystra. Lystra, remember, was the place where He healed the lame man. They were about to do sacrifice to him as if he were a god. Some Jews come down and stir up the people. And then they stone him and drag him out of the city and leave him for dead. He said, the Lord rescued me out of them all. The Lord's rescue in that circumstance when he was stoned and the people all thought he was dead prepares the way... For his ultimate rescue in verse in 2 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, verses 16 through 18, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. He was rescued out of the lions, probably a reference to Nero. And he says in verse 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul knows he's about to die. This is the epistle where he says that I have fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7. But the Lord's deliverance is of him in the past. The Lord's deliverance is of him in the recent past as he delivered him from his first hearing before Nero. Is it show that even when he does die, the Lord will ultimately deliver him from the greatest foe of all, death itself. So every time we have a near-death experience and we recover, it is a reminder of a greater deliverance to come. May God help us to see this attitude in David here because he opens with a prayer, ends in praise. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. He does. He this um, this psalm, like several psalms, opens with crying out in distress and ends with praising God. Very good point. In verse five, verse five, the salah in verse four kind of breaks up the psalm. And some say, well, this is a psalm of lament, emphasizing verses 1 through 4. Others say, oh, this is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise, verses 5 through 8. I, I don't know that classifications in a, most of these cases are helpful. But he says, for you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. And, and I... I found all kinds of interesting references about people fearing the name of God. One of them is in Nehemiah 1 verse 11, where people delight to fear God's name. They delight to stand in awe of God. He says, you, now that you, he uses a separate personal pronoun for you, it's the U is, in effect, underlined and emphasized, placed in italics, however we would emphasize something, to stress its great importance. For you have heard my vows, and you have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. In verse 6, you will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations he will abide before God forever, appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve him. Now, we talked about difficulties with translations before. A loving kindness and truth. Is this, is verse 7, a request that the king exercise these qualities? That the king in his reign, that he exercised these things and that God grant him the wisdom to rule rightly, to guide the people in loving kindness and truth. Is, is that what's being talked about? Or is this a prayer for the king to be a special recipient of God's loving kindness and truth? As I started reading this psalm over in preparation for this class and kept looking at it, I originally was viewing it the first way I mentioned that I was thinking that this is speaking of God granting to the king loving kindness and truth. And we do see that kind of idea in Psalm 72. That's, it's, a, it's a valid idea. But as I looked at it more, it seemed like to me that he is begging God's loving kindness. And God's truth to guide the king. Maybe there's not that much difference between those two. But in verse, in verse 8, it says, I will praise your name forever. He fears God's name and he praises God's name. I will praise your name forever that I may pay my vows day by day. Um... I have a question. Yes. Is the king he's talking about him or is it someone else? Okay. 
I like that question because it's almost biblical. Of whom does he speak? Himself or someone else? Uh, you can think of the Ethiopian eunuch. This, uh, this has been a question uh, that people who've written on this psalm have discussed, Sandy, because you notice before this, he is speaking in first person. Like in verse 1, my cry my prayer in verse 2 I uh, I will call to you when my heart is faint lead me to the rock that is higher than I he's speaking in first person when he addresses God he addresses him in second person in verse 3 and in verse 5 but now the king is spoken of in third person in verse 6 like it's somebody else um, I, the Psalm of David, I, I still lean toward because, especially because of the New Testament use of Psalms that are in that category, that, that this is probably a reference to uh, the king himself. It's probably, David's probably speaking of himself. I, I think that that's, that's probably best. But, but I think, too, as he is praying for himself, as he uses this phrase, the king, he is praying not only for himself, but for his dynasty. You know, God promised him that after he slept with his fathers, that his sons would continue to reign after him. Saul, as king of Israel, was basically a one and done. No one from his family reigned. David's family is king in the rest of the history of Judah. Maybe a blip during Athaliah, but shouldn't have been. But, but, but the point, that, that it could be a prayer for his dynasty. I was going to mention uh, when he says, you will prolong the king's life. Often when people come into the presence of the king, for example, in 1 Kings 1 verse 31, when Bathsheba and Nathan are coming before David and telling him what's going on in the land. They say, may the king live forever. They say that to Israelite kings. And Nehemiah says that to a pagan king, Artaxerxes, in Nehemiah 2 and verse 3. May the king live forever. So that was a common wish. You knew the king was not going to live to infinity, but you were giving well wishes upon him, upon his dynasty. And so that was normal protocol when coming to the king's presence. But uh, here um, he is just begging for God's mercy, I think, upon him, upon his dynasty for years to come. Now we're going to discuss that verse a little bit more. And have more to say about it. And you might be able to guess how uh, in just a second. But um, anyway, but he says, but, but so, so that's a good question, Sandy. But we, we will discuss the whole picture a little bit more. But he says in verse 8, I will, I will sing praise to your name forever. I will pay my vows day by day. Um. What, what other questions? What other ideas? Well, I'd like to know what he means by uh, paying his vows day by day. 
Okay. He mentioned the vows in verse 5. You've heard my vows. Then he states in verse 8 that he will pay his vows. Uh, a vow was often made. By the way, they have been mentioned quite frequently in this context. Look at Psalm 50 verse 14. Psalm 50 verse 14. Uh, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Uh, Often when they brought a peace offering of thanksgiving, that was because God had kept some promise to them. They made the promise, Lord, if you bless me with this, I, I, I will do this in service. And they keep their vows and they bring their sacrifice of thanksgiving. Look at Psalm 56. Psalm 56. Okay. Is it 12? Um, Okay, yes. Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. Both times the vows are connected to thank offerings uh, in those passages. Yes, thank you for that, Gary. And, um, and, and so you see the vows mentioned several times. I believe there is a reference in Psalm 57 too. I may be off on that. But, but what I'm saying, that, that just gives you some contextual background. In the vow, like a promise. It's, it is, it's like a promise that, you remember Jacob said, Lord, if you will be with me and you will guide me back to this land, then a tenth of all that I have will be yours. And this place where I lay this stone, this will be your house. And so it's a promise to God, God, and it's, it shouldn't be viewed, in a, it wasn't viewed as just making a bargain with God. It's just saying, God, if you give this, um, I will give to you. And, you know, I, I know personally, I can think of one situation where I, I kind of did that in a monetary way. I don't want to get off on that story. Um, though it, it, it was a good story. I'll grant you that. It was a good story, which... Um, uh, it did not involve you. No, it did not involve you, nor the oil well that I'm supposed to inherit from you. But any, um, any other questions that you all had? Okay. Yes, it is tied to what they will bring to God. Now, this is one comment that I'll, that I will, a uh, couple of things I'll say about verse 8, Ruth, in regard to your question. In verse 8, uh, it says, So I will praise, I will sing praise to your name forever. One writer said, this is Derek Kidner, Vows were usually discharged in a single ceremony, but David is conscious of a debt that can never be paid off. I bring your vows day after day. 
And another writer said, this is Tate in the Word Biblical series, he will make his whole life a continuous pain of vows, continually to bring his name. Yeah. the people because he goes on to say you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name so he's so thankful that he he's king over God's people he's leading the right yes. group of people and so he kind of reiterates it down I will perform my vows day after day yes so that's I right I take these vows very seriously and lead the people yes. I will perform them every day of my life yes very good very good you know, and sometimes, it, that, that is very good. I don't mean to brush over it, but, but as you also said, you said they talk vows as being a king. And I don't mean to act like when I said at one time I took some kind of vow, like, I mean, that that's the only time we do. Most of us here have made vows. And that's what we do in marriage, isn't it? And we're supposed to keep those in our daily reading in Proverbs. There was the other day the statement in Proverbs 2.17. She forsakes the companion of her youth. And I'm paraphrasing this. And forgets the covenant of her God. She's breaking her vows. And we pay our vows day after day. Now, yes. In my book, it says perform my vows. And... That suggests to me that even when we become Christians, we, we vow to live a Christian life. Mm-hmm. That's our promise to God. Yes. And I think that's what he's, that's my interpretation. I may daily perform my vows, in other words, live my Christian life. Okay. Yes. May those, um, can those of you who have died to sin live any longer therein? There's a certain way that we have to live in order to be pleasing in his sight. And we use God's forgiveness not as an excuse for future sin, but as a motivation for present encouragement to, to live for him and to surrender to him. Um, now, what did you come up with on this question of how is God referred to in the psalm? What would be some ways that you see God referred to? Okay, God is the rock. Either God is the rock or God is the one who leads into the rock. So God is the one who provides security. And you see that same idea, you see that in 61 verse 2. 61 verse 2. In 61 verse 3, you see God described as a refuge. And a strong tower. And a strong tower. He is a refuge. He is a strong tower. So all these are ways to refer to God. Someone else was saying something. I thought. It was read. Okay. Did you have something, Rhonda? You okay? Um, but all these are ways to refer to God. Now, in light of who God is, what is our response? God. All these phrases emphasize security. 
He is our rock or He leads us to the rock. He is our refuge. He is our strong tower. God is all of these things to us. Therefore, in light of this, what we do is we, in the time of crisis, we cry to Him. Where could we go but to the Lord? Where else could we look except to this God who is our ultimate ground of security? Our ultimate ground of safety? Uh, Because He is our refuge, because He is our refuge, notice that we take refuge. We take refuge in Him. Because He is our refuge, we take refuge in Him. And as a result of this, because of who God is, we fear His name and we praise His name. We fear His name, we praise His name. So God, because of who God is, this is how we respond. You might can add something to that. But I think all those points are valid. But we want to see, when you think of this psalm, how does Jesus fulfill Psalm 61? What are ways that Jesus fulfills this picture of Psalm 71? Psalm 61. Okay, very good. Sandy was asked about this prayer in verses 6 and 7. The ultimate fulfillment. When, when someone said before the king, O king, live forever. It was said to David shortly before his death. In the context, by the way, in 1 Kings 1, of making sure an heir is provided after his death. So they know David's not going to live forever. Statements made to Artaxerxes, we mentioned in the board. They died. But in Jesus' case, he fulfills that in a deeper way. I think that's right at the heart of this, Ruth. So we're going to come back to that. We're going to save that as part of our climactic point here. But what are some other things that you all see about how Jesus fulfills this psalm? Some of them are... are we have seen several times before, David. First you know, four talks about you know taking refuge in the shelter of his wing. Okay, when I saw your hand go up, I was confident you would say that because you like to make that point. It's a good point. I've made that point before. Okay. <laughs> taking uh, refuge. In Matthew twenty-three. Yes. Jesus <laughs> talks about that in reference to Jerusalem. Okay. In Matthew twenty-three. Verses 37 to 39. It's also made in Luke 13, I believe, verse 34. But yes, Jesus says, How often I would gather you, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. God offers refuge, God offers security, God offers shelter, and people are not. They're looking for shelter in other places. They're looking for shelter in all the wrong places. But he can provide that shelter, that security. So, yes. 
So if any of you, when that phrase comes up, that's, that's David's point to make in the application afterwards. What else? What else do you see? Mary? Okay. Okay, very good. So Jesus, in the same verse, in verse 4, is both the God who rescues and the sufferer who looks to God in the midst of hell. And that, that is such a profound concept. But you particularly mention when Jesus cried, the word that is used, heard, in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, is only used, this word, this specific word, is only used like five times in the New Testament, but one of them is in Hebrews 5 and verse 7. When Jesus offered strong crying and tears to the one who was able to save him, and the text says he was heard. He was heard. But even this word heard, which is used in the Greek translation of this Hebrew Old Testament, is used of Jesus specifically in Hebrews 5 verse 7. And like you say, he not only for. for fulfills the exact words. He fulfills the whole picture. He fulfills the whole picture of he is putting his confidence. He believes. He is looking to his father as security, as refuge, and as the strong tower. And therefore he is crying, taking refuge in him and doing all of these things. So that's very good. But but just the fact that Jesus, and this, this shows us how deep how deep the life of Christ is that he can be both the God of the Psalms and the sufferer of the Psalms who looks to God is a profound profound concept um, what else okay let's look I'm sure there are other things Let's look at these, this particularly verses 6 and 7. You'll pro- pro- prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations. He will abide before God forever. Appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve him. Uh, Isaiah, remember this was emphasized um, by your college teacher. Um, <laughs> name all the kings of Judah for us. Start with Rhea Bowen. You can. You know he can go back and change your grade, don't you? <laughs> Give you a lower grade, he should. Yeah, yeah. Well, we start with Rhea Bowen. Well, let's just say this. <coughs> For interest of time, I know you could do it. Rehoboam is first, and who's last? Okay. Okay, we'll assume you got the others in the <laughs> But you've got about 
you know, list of 20 or so kings of Judah in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the first verse is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The ultimate fulfillment of those promises to David was Jesus. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the promises to David. Let's look in Hebrews 7. Now Hebrews 7, the point here is not Jesus as king exclusively. But Jesus as king and priest, and particularly, he's emphasizing Jesus' role as a priest. But Melchizedek, remember, who Jesus is compared to in this passage, Melchizedek was the priest, uh, king of Salem, and priest of the Most High God. So he is being compared to Melchizedek, who was both king and priest. But some of these passages will focus on his role as a priest more. But it emphasizes that that role is eternal. Look at uh, verse 15. Hebrews 7 beginning with verse 15. says, This is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a quote from Psalm 110 verse 1. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. And the point is... Uh, in verse 24, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 25, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I... I we were showing this recently in a Sunday morning sermon that sometimes what Hebrews does is Hebrews will make a point and then quote a passage to, to emphasize a specific word. And not to be redundant, but let me, let me read 16 and 17 again. Who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The word forever is emphasized to show that Jesus is priest on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. When this Psalm. This psalm prays that the king's life will be prolonged and for many generations that he will abide before God forever. This was fulfilled in Jesus in a way that no king of Judah could match. No king of Judah could match. But Jesus fulfilled this in a whole different way. 
after the Jews went into Babylonian captivity. Zedekiah is taken into captivity. His eyes are put out. No king of Judah reigns on that throne. Till Jesus comes 600 years later. And so no king of Judah comes. But in that time, the, the Hebrew language, the Aramaic language was very similar to the Hebrew language. But some Jews used Aramaic more than Hebrew. And they wrote translations of the Hebrew in Aramaic. And they wrote comments on them. And during that time of Babylonian captivity, when, they, when the Targum wrote comments, the Aramaic Targum wrote comments on Psalm 61, verses 6 and 7, they applied these verses to the Messiah. The point, those verses were applied to the Messiah before the Messiah came in New Testament times. They saw their kings did not fulfill these words. And Jesus fulfills these words. Ultimately, that would be the case. They just said the Messiah will fulfill these words. And because of that, because of that, he says, the king says in verse 6, You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. When that word inheritance is used in the Old Testament, how is it most readily used? What's? Yeah, in particularly a promised land, that that was their inheritance. And the promised land, remember we talked about the song Beulah Land, on our, for those that were in that Deuteronomy class? And how Beulah Land uses the images of the promised land of Canaan and Moses viewing that promised land at a picture of the ultimate rest of heaven uses that in some scenes from the end of the book of Isaiah. But the promised land of Canaan was a picture of a greater inheritance in heaven. An inheritance that, fade, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. First Peter 1 verses 3 and 4. The point is because our king has prayed in Gethsemane and been heard, he has given himself as a sacrifice for our sins, as a sacrifice for us. As he has done that and he is king forever, we can hope forever to be in God's presence, to praise him and receive the inheritance from him. We can experience these blessings in and through Jesus. We appreciate that. We appreciate your presence and I appreciate we should stand in awe of this God who has made such provisions for us. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing that does amaze me every time we, we start this psalm. And sometimes we'll start in a psalm and I'll think it's not going to be a whole lot of references to Jesus here. But as you turn and look at it, there sure is too. 
God has told this story so many times in Scripture. In a very way, the Bible is a complex book, but the Bible is a simple book that keeps making the same point over and over and over and over again. And all these experiences and all these offices ultimately pointed to the one who would bring salvation and deliverance. Thank you. As um, any more questions as we close? Ray, did you want to uh, lead us in prayer as we finish?